This is the Adopted Mom Podcast. Adoption may look different for each family, but we need solidarity from other crazy people who took this leap. And that is what we do here. We encourage, we build up, we share the wins and losses. We lean on each other and we get through this together. Thanks for joining us. Hello, hello. Happy AMP day, whichever day you're listening. Today, we're going to sit down with Glenn Coster. That's right, a dude on the podcast. He has dedicated this season of his life to walking across the whole entire country to raise awareness for adoption. He has an incredible story that has led him to this point in his life, and I do mean incredible. The things this guy has gone through and where his life is today, amazing. We will get to that in a minute, though. You know I got to remind you about my giveaway for National Adoption Month. Every single person who signs up for my email list this month is going to get a free sticker. So what are you waiting for? Head to theadoptivemompodcast.com slash email to sign up and get your awesome AMP sticker designed by my awesome husband, Brian. Um, Also, if you haven't already, go to iTunes and rate and review this podcast. We work really hard on this podcast to bring awesome stories and content for the adoptive community. And if you have found value in what we're doing, a quick review is one of the best ways to bump the show up so it will be recommended to more people looking for parenting and adoption podcasts. So please click that little icon and leave a few words about why you love the show. With all of that said, let's jump over to my interview with Glenn. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. And I'm so excited. Uh, you are in the the man club now, Mr. Glenn Coster, on the Adoptive Mom Podcast. There have not been that many of you who have been guests. So congratulations. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so take a minute and tell us who you are. Well, I'm 62 years old. I'll be 63 in less than two weeks. I'm retired. If you... Uh, think that I'm retired. That's another guess. I'm actually (laughs) changing professions. Um, I received my license as a pastor in the Church of God Anderson on December 23. Um, And we'll be assuming that in the not too distant future. Um, I retired after 40 years in IT. I am married. I have been married to Charles C. Coster for five and a half years. I I better remember that one. Um, (laughs) I have uh, five kids ranging in age from 39 to 15. Goodness. Yeah. So, okay. I think that, you know, I've heard part of your story before and you just gave like, you know, the abridged version of part of it, but I know that there's so many details woven in there. So do you mind telling us your, your whole story? No, I don't mind at all. Um, because I, I tell my story to anyone who will listen because I think somebody might be able to benefit from it. Um, my birth father was a disabled Korean war vet. Um, and in his, uh, after he was repatriated, he met my mom while he was being uh, treated. Um, and I was born soon after that. In fact, my mom, my, my mom, birth mom and dad were living in northern Michigan. And August 20, 1955, she said, I'm not having a kid born in the backwoods of Michigan. So she boarded a Greyhound bus with a one-year-old and a two-year-old in tow on a Saturday morning. She arrived at her mom's house on Sunday night about 9.30. I was born at 5.17 the next morning. I could have been a greyhound baby anywhere. (laughs) Uh, Fast forward a few years. In 1962, uh, my two older brothers and I were the only three in school. When my father left to to go look for work, he could not find any, so he called back and asked my mom to come get him. She borrowed a truck and took the kids who weren't in school. She got down to Muskegon where he was, and he said, there's nothing back back there for us. I'll call my sister and have her get the boys from school and let's go on to your mother's house in Colorado. So they left not having any money because my mom was unemployed because the pickle factory closed. Um, She wrote a series of hot checks to get them to Colorado. And because she had borrowed a truck, it became a stolen truck when it crossed state lines. That played into it in a big time in just a minute. Um, The aunt who they called back to take care of us never showed up. Somewhere between six and eight weeks, the three of us boys, I was six, one of my brothers was seven, the oldest had just turned nine. Um, We lived in our one-room log cabin for six to eight weeks before somebody at school said these boys are coming to school hungrier and dirtier every day. What's going on? We were made wards of the court, and custody of, of us was given to the aunt who never showed up. So we moved into town, and after several months, the court said, this isn't working, so... They made us wards of the court again. Um, my 
two older brothers from a, were from a different father. He came back to claim them. They contacted my mom in Pueblo, and she said, I can't go back because I've got warrants out for my arrest because of the stolen truck and hot checks. Mm. My dad had 11 brothers and sisters within five miles of that courthouse. Nobody showed up to claim me. I was placed as a permanent ward of the court and placed for adoption. The sheriff in the county became my first foster father, and he had a, a neighbor whose daughter had just been told just weeks before that that she would never be able to have kids. And she said, this is our answer to prayer. Can we adopt him? And so they set about that process, and I was adopted by them. Five months later, um, she became expectant with twins and had a very difficult pregnancy. I was a little bit of an independent, recalcitrant child, um, rebellious. <laughs> um, and I was being sexually abused by a cousin in the relationship. Um, because of her pregnancy, a lot of, there was a lot of neglect that went on. And 13 months later, uh, my social worker showed up at our doorstep one morning and said, we have to go to court today, Glenn. And I said, oh, nobody told me about this, but okay. So we, we went to court, and uh, I was shuffled off into a, another room for a while, played with some toys, mostly tinker toys. Then after lunch, I was ushered into the courtroom where I testified, they tell me now, about an hour and a half. Wow, how old then were you? Then I was ushered back to play a toy. I was, at this time, I had just turned eight. Okay. Goodness. That's a lot and, in a short uh, amount we, of time. Uh, shortly after, shortly, it is. And shortly after that, um, after four o'clock, the social worker said, are you ready to go? And I said, absolutely. And we walked out and got into her car. And the first turn she made, I looked at her and I said, Winnie, we're not going home. Where are we going? One turn. And I had such a keen sense of direction. I knew we weren't going the right place. Mm-hmm. I learned later that the state of Michigan had opted to move me six miles north because they were worried that with my sense of direction, I would be able to find that family back, and they didn't want to take that chance. Mm. I went to live with a foster foster family in Flint, and several months into that, they said, well, can we adopt him? And the state of Michigan said, no, because you just turned 60, and you have to be 59 or under. Hmm. Michigan was wise for once. Um just after Thanksgiving in 1964, um, we went out Christmas shopping, came home after my bedtime, and I uh, told my foster father goodnight. It was the last I saw of him. He passed away of a heart attack in the night. It took three weeks for them to find another place to move me to. Um, so I was there through the funeral and through a very dark Christmas. Mm. That capped almost a two-year very difficult run. I was placed in another foster foster home where they had raised 12 kids of their own and then started taking in foster kids. And I was the 13th and last foster child. And they made all of us do the same things they did their kids. We went to school and were expected to do well. We went to church. Um, but that's not out of the ordinary. Because remember back when my brothers and I were on our own in uh, for six to eight weeks. Mm -hmm. One of the things that took them so long to figure out what was going on is we never missed a day of school and we never missed a day of church. Um, and that helped plead our cause on, on we're, why we went undetected. But anyway, they uh, um, also sent us to catechism and my catechism instructor that uh, semester was a guy by the name of George. If he said black, I said white. If he said um, stand, I, I sat. And he was always telling me four legs, of the, four legs on the floor gun. And I'd look at him and say, I, I do. I've got two of mine and two of the chair. <laughs> <clears throat> After several months of that, he and his wife got together and said, this is a boy who needs a home. Um, can we pr provide it? Their concern was that I would come in as the oldest child, almost four years older than, their, than the one they already had. They actually had two children. Um, and they were concerned about how that would mix, especially having heard horror stories about um, older kids coming, adoptees coming in and disrupting family life. Right. So they arranged to take me on a family vacation. And so they picked me up on a Saturday morning. We went to Northern Michigan. We did everything that families do. We played uh, board games. We went fishing. We played shuffleboard, basketball, you name it. We did it. The next Saturday, we drove back to my foster home and I was getting out of the car and saying my goodbyes. And they said, no, you don't understand. Go get your stuff. We've called ahead and it's all packed and ready for you. You're coming to live with us. And so I became a coster. 
and I've never looked back. On August 3, 1966, Michigan law at the time allowed for a child, the month they turned 11, to say yes or no to their own adoption. It's now 15 from what I understand, but then it was 11. And so on August 3, 1966, I stood before a judge and I said, yes, I want to stay a coster. And that's how it all began. Unfortunately, as I grew, I became the spitting image of my birth father. Mm. And that I became an abusive spouse and an alcoholic. I've been violence-free since May of 89, and I've been alcohol-free since March of 89. Those two things say that I can't be a foster parent or an adoptive parent. So wow. now that I'm retired, now that I re I'm retired, I've decided to go about giving back a different way. And so I started the walk on February 1st across this country. And that's how we met. Yes. And so and I definitely want to talk about the walk and how you've decided to give back. But I know that there are some other details about what happened to your birth family and and the relationships that have formed that. I know that that's shaped why you want to spread the word and why you think this is so important, right? Yes. In, in 1989, I didn't like who I was as the alcoholic and, and abusive spouse. And I said, that's not what I learned in my, in my foster homes or in my adopted home. Why? So I set about trying to find my birth parents. And they were nowhere to be found because all my records were sealed. Yeah. Not once, but twice. <laughs> and, um, so I said, okay, what other options do I have? Well, I know that the first family, remind, mind you, I did not know my birth name. That was among the things blocked out. Uh, but I did remember the family wow. name of the family that tried to adopt me. And so I started looking for them in the Hazel Park, Hazel Park, Michigan phone book. Unfortunately, there weren't any there. So after my brother's wedding in, in October of 89, I took a week off and I went to northern Michigan. I said, we used to come up here to Gaylord, Michigan, um, frequently to see what was to, to see family so i went to gaylord and i found the phone book and i started calling all the kuharics in the phone book there were 11 of them 10 no answers on the 11th one i got i got a lady who answered and i started to explain who i was and that i was looking for a cast kuharic and his wife's name was treven they used to live in hazel park and she said well yeah that's my son and his wife and they don't live there anymore they live in um pleasant valley michigan just a few miles from where you're calling me from. Wow. And so she gave their number and I called and Treva was beside herself when I, when I called and she says, we've always wondered what happened to you. Um, and wanted to catch up, but we had no way of getting a hold of you. She says, but Cass isn't here right now. He's at the American Legion in central Lake. Would you be willing to meet us there so we can catch up? I said, sure. As I drove into central Lake, um, I had blocked out virtually the first six and a half years of my life completely. Mm. As I drove into Central Lake, I had to cross the bridge where my birth father and I used to fish from. I was the only one of the kids he ever took fishing. But as soon as I crossed that bridge, I was flooded with memories. I pulled alongside the road and I cried for a good half hour before continuing down to the American Legion Hall. And I was escorted in because you can't go in without uh, knowing somebody or being a, a vet. Right. So, and I was introduced to Cass again, and we spent the next hour catching up, and I learned about the pregnancy, pregnancy she had been going through, and they learned about what had happened to me in the intervening years. And then I said, and here's why I traced you down. I'm trying to find my birth family. And you can immediately see a blank look came over both of their eyes. And they said, we can't help you. They never gave us your name. Wow. <sighs> and... About that time, the bartender walked over and he says, I don't normally eavesdrop, and I even rarely, even more rarely get involved, but I think I know who your birth father is. Wow. But he doesn't live here. He lives north of here, and I don't have his phone number. He has a sister who lives here in town. Do you want her address or her phone number? I said, this is the first lead I've had. Give me her address. So I drove out there. This is Early October, it was beautiful outside, 70-some degrees. She had the door to the house open, but the screen door was closed. I knocked on the door, and as this lady started to come to the door, I said, excuse me, and that's all I got out. And she let out a scream and said, you're little Glenn, and I haven't seen you since you're this big, pointing to about a, the size of a seven- or eight-year-old. 
And uh, so we caught up for a few minutes and I told her I was looking for my dad and she gave me his address and phone number. And I said, well, this is one I'm not going to do over the phone either. So yeah. I drove up Ellsworth, Michigan and knocked on my father's door and he wasn't there. But I got to meet my um, cousin and my youngest sister off my dad's side. My cousin, because that was his common law wife. Um, and my sister, because that was she was six at the time. But my dad wasn't there. So I made arrangements to come back. And um, so I went back and I stayed with the Coherics that night. And that was the night that I got to uh, touch base with the cousin who had sexually abused me. Mm. And one of the toughest things I ever had to do was look him in the eye and say, you're forgiven. It was less than six weeks later, he passed away of some health complications that he had. But he passed away knowing that things were okay. At wow. least between. So the next morning I went back to my father's house and we caught up and, and went through everything that happened to me and happened to him in the meantime. And uh, when I was all done, he said, I said, how about the rest of my family? And he says, you know, if you had been here two weeks ago, I would say you're out of luck because I don't know. But last weekend, your brother's wife contacted me. She's been looking for you for her husband's 40th birthday. As a surprise present, I couldn't help her. I didn't know where you were. Here's her number. So I called Cindy um, and explained to her who I was. And she let out a scream. <laughs> third time. And uh, she said, I can't believe we connected. Are you coming to California anytime soon? And I traveled a lot for business. And I told her, well, as a matter of fact, I have a trip scheduled out there in three weeks. She says, can we meet you in the airport? I won't tell Jim you're coming. I'll just tell him we're going to meet an old friend. Mm -hmm. So I arrived out there. Back when um, Jim and Ron's dad came to claim them, um, between the three of us, we had one store-bought toy at the time. And as they were pulling away, I yelled, wait, wait, wait. And I went into the house and got that box of Lincoln Logs. And I brought it out and I handed it to Jim. And I said, here, you need this worse than I do because there's two of you. And... When I reconnected with him in 1989 in LAX, I brought him a brand new box of Lincoln Walks. And we had a great time catching up. And as the weekend wore on, uh, I had canceled my hotel reservation and stayed with them instead. And they said, can you come back for Thanksgiving? And I said, "Ah, that's four weeks. Yeah, I can do that. And I said, actually, I would have paid any price Mm -hmm. to go back there. And so... Mm -hmm. I made arrangements to come back for Thanksgiving, and they said, we want mom to meet you, but we don't want her to know you're coming. So I get there on Wednesday, and we had a good time that evening. Thursday morning, Thanksgiving, rolled around, and we rode rode out to my mom's house. Mind you, she doesn't know I'm coming. They walk in, and a couple minutes later, I walk in unannounced. She let out a scream and just (laughs) You were used to it by then, right, the screaming? Used to it by then, Yes. (laughs) And we caught up, um, and she explained everything that happened and and why she didn't come back. Um, And I learned that my father at the time said, um, let him go. He'll be better off. Mm. And the reality was he was right. Um, The rest of my siblings, uh, when my mother finally left my father, they moved to Watts, L.A. in 1967, where... The race riots were among the worst in the country in 67 and 68. They actually had to have police escorts to get to and from school. Wow. Um, I, I didn't have to go through that. But after, our, after we were caught up and the tears had dried, my mom went into her bedroom, took my birth certificate off of her wall. Wow. Brought it out and handed it to me and said, I don't need this anymore. It's been the constant reminder of the sun I never expected to see again. My birth mother is in her 80s now and has COPD and is not expected to survive the year. Mm. It's been a good time catching up. But something else happened that that weekend. Um, I had a brother by birth who wasn't agoraphobic. He had not been out of the house in 10 years. After reconnecting with that family within six months, he not only was out of the house, he had a job. He had his own place and within a year was married. Wow. He just passed away about three months ago. 
and to the day of his death, he credited connecting with me and having his life complete again as the, the key to his recovery. The day after Thanksgiving, I met my youngest brother with half-inch bulletproof glass between us. Mm. He was doing time for drugs, and it was not, not his first con- conviction. He has been clean and sober since. The last time I talked to him, he still credits connecting with me as the source to his strength and recovery. That's been almost 40 years, and he's still clean and sober. Wow. It's been an incredible ride for each of us. Yeah, goodness. And that, I mean, that's so much story. And I think that it's encouraging to, um, I don't know, to anyone who's in a similar situation or just people who are in, um, I don't know, bad home life situations or adoptions where they don't, they're struggling or they don't see where they fit or they're, um, they feel that, that hole. And so I wanted to follow up with asking, how did the Costers feel about your journey to find your birth family? My parents were absolutely behind it. They mm-hmm. knew it was something I had to do. Um, I have a sister by adoption who has not talked to me since, except at my dad's funeral. And she looked me in the eye after I did this, and she said, if you love mom and dad, you wouldn't have done that. My mom has talked to her, and, and we're not getting through yet. She still holds it against me as something I should not have ever done. But I needed it for my recovery and for my healing. Yeah. Um, I talked to my, my adopted brother many times, um, but not in the last couple of years because he doesn't take my calls anymore either. Um, but I talked to my mom several times a week. That's awesome. They That's were very awesome. supportive of it. Um, yeah. So I'm the glad rest- you brought up your recovery again because I wanted to ask, what happened in 1989 that, that made you, what was that moment that you said, something's got to give, this has to change? Um, I've never been pulled over for DUI, but in March of 89, I came the closest I've ever been. Mm. I managed to avoid a checkpoint and I knew that was the time to change that. In May 27 of 89, that was the trigger that finally said, I have to find out why. Um, my first wife had been out of town with the kids. She was due home at 6.30, pulled in the driveway about 10 o'clock. She didn't call her mother's house before she left. I had no idea why they were late, and I let her have it. And I got physically abusive. Um, I left the house in tears, but I went to the nearest 7-Eleven, and I picked up the phone, and I called the police on myself. Wow. And said, they said, stay where you are. We're sending two patrol cars out. One to your house and one to you. They went and talked to her. And under Texas law at the time, they couldn't do anything if she was not willing to press charges. And she said, I don't want to press charges. I just want him gone. Um, They talked to me and expressed their gratitude for me calling myself in. Um, They knew how much that took. um, But they said, you can't go back to that house as long as your family is there. And so I didn't. And so for the next 18 months, the only time I saw my children were with um, a third party present. Mm. Mm-hmm. That was a tough 18 months, too. Yeah, I bet. So I think, I mean, this is that's that was the end of that that season in your life. But you uh, not had, quite. Uh, well, there was, more, there was one more thing that happened. OK. Um, in, in November of 1989, I was admitted to a psychiatric hospital against my will. Wow. Uh, under order because of the abuse, which had been now vacant for seven months. But they wanted to make sure that there was no justifiable reason for me, me being that way and being where I was. And through the course of the 10 days that I spent in that hospital, I got a different look on life. But the psychiatrists that were seeing me also came to a different conclusion than most other. And they said, this is a man who is traumatized by his past. And that's the only thing that's wrong with him. Wow. 
And there are, we know that there are so many kids in similar situations and that it's the lines between, um, what's, what's your fault and what's not are so blurry in that situation and in those, um, in those places. And so you had said that you were a rebellious child and clearly you had some deviance as an adult as well. Um, but what was your, what was your journey like after the Costers adopted you? Did you continue to be rebellious or did they change something in you? Um, I was rebellious, but in, in silent ways, kind of <laughs> uh, give you an example. Um, we were playing outside in front of the house one, that we were living in at one time and we had a nice split rail fence and the kids and I, um, in the neighborhood, we're seeing who could jump the highest over that fence. And my dad came out on the porch and said, Glenn, come here a minute. So I went up to the, to the door and he says, I don't want you jumping over that fence anymore. It's not safe for you or the other ones. If somebody hits that fence and they fall flat on their face on that driveway, somebody's going to get hurt. And so he closed the door. I looked at my friends and I said, watch this. <laughs> and I dumped the fence one more time. Only trouble is I didn't realize that my dad was watching from the window. And so I got called in and I spent the rest of the night um, being punished at, uh, <laughs> as the only way that he ever saw fit to punish me. Um, and that we, we had a talk that lasted well into the wee hours of the morning. Um, but there were other things that I did, but it was always kind of those silent rebellious things. But the other thing that changed in me is I had a, a, a new sense to belong. I went out of my way to prove that I was good enough to, to belong where I was. Whether it was in school or in church or in the family, I excelled in everything I did just because I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to get pulled out again. Yeah. And I I mean, that's probably a good and a bad thing because that putting that kind of pressure on yourself can be so strenuous for a kid. Um, just feeling like you have to be perfect. You have to you know measure up. You have to do these things. Um that can be so hard. But at the same time, you knew what you want. And I think that that speaks to what is clearly a fighter mentality that exists in you. And I wanted to know what would you credit that mentality to? Um, I, th I have to say, I think I got that from my birth father. Hmm. Um, the day that he was wounded in Korea, his entire platoon, except one other guy, had just landed, and everyone was killed except he and one other guy. And it was enemy fire that killed, uh, not not enemy fire, but it was friendly fire that, that wiped them out. Um, they had called in their position, and they were supposed to be attacking the troops in advance of them, and the fire landed short. Um, and he said, I'm not going to let it stop me. Um, and... I think I got that from him, a determination to just keep going no matter what. Um, and so, yeah, that, but the thing that really I learned later on when, when I was adopted, my folks moved me from a public school to a Christian school. Mm -hmm. Flint Christian at the time did intake testing of all students, regardless of where they were coming from. So they could place them appropriately. I was coming into fifth grade. Mind you, if you looked at my records, I was passed on condition in second grade and third grade. But there was a lot going on in my life at that time. There was nothing that said I should be a stellar student. But when they did the testing, I was testing at the second semester, eighth grade level, going into fifth grade. Wow. And they had a decision to make. Do we place him where he's academically appropriate, where he will continue to be bored in school, and may have time to act up, or do we place him socially where he needs to be to get the social skills that he has missed out on moving, moving from school to school and place to place? The teachers in that school got together, and they were brought in, and they to a person, they said, we will challenge him as long as he's here. Put him with his peers. That was a statement. I was in that school for five years, and I was continuing to be challenged by those teachers the rest of the time I was there. But I went into the fifth grade. But being challenged by those teachers also helped me to to make it and to be determined. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, I, that's clearly that's clearly stuck around because even though you've had pockets of time where um, that you maybe aren't proud of, even though they're part of your story, um, 
it seems like over and over again, you pull yourself out of that hole. And I just think that's so cool. I mean, I know that it might be a journey that's riddled with unpleasant memories and um, shame even, but that's something you've got to be proud of yourself for and, you know, thankful for, right? Above all, I'm thankful to God. Right. For giving me the nurturing, loving parents that he did because they put up with a lot of things that, trust me, a lot of other adoptive parents could not have put up with. And I say that because as I was going through becoming part of the Coster family, um, my mother's brother and his wife saw what was going on and they decided to make an older adoption possible. And they brought a young child into their home and he lasted 10 months and it made it so disruptive. And later, Uncle Jim asked me, he says, Glenn, what was the difference between you and him and your folks and us? And I said, Uncle Jim, I can't tell you other than the fact that I know that in my in my roots all the way back from the beginning, even when I had nothing else to hang on to, I had God and the church. This young man you brought in, I know what he came from, and he didn't. Mm. He struggled. Um, but it was more it was more than just a family that had adopted me. Um, it was the it was the entire congregation of the church we went to that adopted me. I had so many people that I looked up to as mother and father figures and and my last foster family. I called them Grandpa and Grandma Visser until the day they died. Um, the first job I ever had that, that was of significance um, was a part-time job as a freshman in high school that was the um, the son of Grandpa and Grandma Visser. And he ran an electric firm in Flint, and, and he knew I needed something to keep me busy and out of trouble, and <laughs> he offered me a job. So... Because if you left me alone, I, I found ways to get into trouble still. <laughs> oh, yeah. What kid doesn't? But yeah. All right. So I want to explore a little bit the topic of forgiveness, because it seems like you've had a lot of opportunities to put that into practice. Um, yes. And to be honest, forgiveness, I think, is is a t- is an idea that eludes a lot of us. Um, it's just so hard because God is perfect on forgiveness and he gives it freely. But for us, it's so hard to even imagine letting go of anger like that. And you, above a lot of people, have had so many opportunities where 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 your feelings or your life was cast to the side in favor of someone else's and you've been able to forgive them. What um tell me about that. Well the one experience that I did not tell you when I was giving my life story, I reconnected with everybody in nineteen eighty nine and I've stayed in touch. Uh, my birth father passed away in two thousand three. But in 1991, I made a special trip back to Michigan, and I drove up to Ellsworth, Michigan, and singled him out for the sole purpose of looking him in the eye and saying, you're forgiven. That was the only reason for that trip. And I didn't do that so much for him. I did it for me because I had learned um, that as long as I hung on to it, it was just going to burn. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I could forgive that I could really get truly get past it. And I've seen so many other former adoptees through the years. Um, two of my best friends growing up were adopted. Uh, and they never got past that forgiveness part. And I know one of them still to this day begrudges his parents. Why did you let me go? Um, and I'm, I'm, I feel for him. Mm-hmm. Because the, it, as soon as I did that with my with my father, it was like a weight was lifted off my shoulder, a weight that I didn't have to carry anymore. Yeah. Hey, y'all, I have something super exciting to share with you guys. I know we just celebrated World Adoption Day, but did you know that November 17th is National Adoption Day here in the States? So to celebrate, on top of giving away a free sticker this whole month for joining my email list, I'm also partnering up with the Family Seal Company to do a t-shirt giveaway. The Family Seal is a clothing company that designs products that help people show their passion for family, faith, and adoption. They are also an adoptive family, so that's super awesome. You can check out their stuff at thefamilyseal.com and be on the lookout for my giveaway later this week. 
So I wanted to ask also, you know, you, I think that this is common with a lot of adoptees or foster kids is that you, uh, subconsciously choose to evict certain memories from your mind. And you had said that earlier. So how did you, cause you're a great storyteller and I think you probably get to do it a lot, but how did you piece together your story again? Oh, it wasn't easy. It took a lot of interview hours, um, <laughs> with my birth mom, with my adoptive parents, with my siblings. And uh, actually for some of it, I had to go back to my birth grandmother while she was still around. And, and after I reconnected, I didn't have a lot of time to spend with her because she passed away about four months after I reconnected. Mm. But I spent untold hours talking to them. And what unfortunately I've learned, and even now as I'm trying to write my autobiography, is that the two stories on, on, the, on both sides of the, of the aisle don't always jive. Mm. And so trying to out which one is the most correct um, has been difficult uh, because what my birth mom says was different than what my birth father said. And I have to wait, well, are they trying to protect something in their lives? Um, and if so, then I'm going to let them protect that as I tell my story. But if it's just something they don't remember correctly and other pieces segment and and tell the true story i'll go with what what i what others agree with and so some in some cases it has been majority rules yeah um so and that i don't know that that takes a lot a lot of that fighter mentality that we talked about just to figure this out and to sit down because i think it would have been easy for you to say let's just let the past be the past and i'm gonna move on with my life why disturb something that's going well and i think that instead you have seen what your story can do and the power that it can have on, um, I don't know, on the adoption and foster community, which brings us to the kind of the culmination of this whole story, which is what you're doing now. Um, tell us about that. Well, knowing that I can't be a foster parent or, or an adoptive parent, I set about several years ago, actually in, in 2011 was another pivotal point because I lost almost 60 pounds that year because I had reached that point again where I didn't like who I was or where I was. Mm. I was overweight on all kinds of medication for different problems. I said, this has to change. So I went about changing my diet and exercise, lost the 60 pounds, got off all medication. 2012, um, work had another fitness challenge based on the number of steps we could walk in six, in six weeks. I kind of cheated because I had a full-time job I had a part-time job at Walmart, and I had another part-time job as a reporter. So I was constantly on the go, and I won <laughs> that kind of running away with it. Um, but when I was when it was done, I was out walking one day, and I said, you know, this is kind of neat. Well, what can I do with this? So I had this vision of walking across Colorado. Um, I mean, across, across Kansas. So in 2014, I walked from Oklahoma to Nebraska um, to, to prove I could do it. And I did. I had some health problems because of it, like some sore feet that required medical attention. Wow. Uh, in 2015, I set about uh, walking from Missouri to Colorado. I was trying to get there for my 60th birthday because I was born in Colorado. I thought that would be cool to get back there on my birthday. 487 miles I was going to do in 22 days. I got shut down three times for medical reasons. Ugh. Still made it. Wow. And in the process, raised almost $10,000 for local Kansas charities. Um, and I don't know how much was raised elsewhere because I told everybody if they wanted to support my walk and they weren't from Kansas, support an agency where they lived. Mm. And I know that my uncle donated $5,000 to a charity in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So I don't know how much other people donated elsewhere. I know that it was in excess of multiple thousands of dollars. Um, but when I was done with that walk, I was out walking again and I said, you know, what can I do with it now? And that's when the, it came to, let's walk across the country. And I met a guy who walked from the bottom of the Grand Canyon to Cincinnati for the, to, before the Creation Museum opened, raising awareness of the Creation Museum. That's all he was doing was raising awareness of what was coming. And I said, if he can do that for a museum, I can certainly do it for adoption and foster care. 
So can I walk across the country? Well, I could do like everybody else and walk from San Diego or San Francisco East, uh, 25, 26, 27. That's nothing. Okay. But what if I walked from Miami to Seattle? If I walk that diagonally, it's 3,500 miles. Okay. Come to find out nobody else has walked that route yet and documented it. I said, okay, I'm going to do that. But then I said that the other side of that is not only is it the longest way, it's also the most difficult because if you take the shortest route, you have to go through five mountain ranges. And I said, I, that's not enough for me. I want to walk the, the distance of north to south and east to west in one walk. So I've been stair-stepping my walk. I go north for a while, turn west, go north, turn west. Um, and when I'm done, it will be 4,300 miles, and I will have walked through seven mountain ranges. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, <clears throat> And I got shut down in Shadron, Nebraska in July, um, in part because in, this walk isn't as easy as it looks either. Because in 2016, I was diagnosed with Graves' disease, which is when your thyroid goes into hyperactive mode. I lost 60 pound, 50 pounds in six weeks. Less than a year later, both the doctors looked at my endocrinologist and my regular doctor looked at me and said, you know, we've never seen this. Your Graves' disease is in complete remission. Huh. And they gradually weeded me off of my medication. I haven't had any trouble since. But as I was walking across western Nebraska, some of the same symptoms started to occur. I lost seven pounds in five days. I started to have tremors in my hands. I was beginning to be lightheaded and dizzy. And that's not a good thing to do when you're walking alongside the road. Right. Um, and I was having this sense, this foreboding sense of being extremely hot even though I'm not running a body temperature and I was in a cool air conditioned room. Um, and that's another sign your thyroid's working hyperactive. And so we talked to, uh, my father-in-law and his wife on a Thursday night and they said, well, you're probably right that it would be good to come home and, and figure out what's going on. But as things work out, my father-in-law had a doctor's appointment the next morning with, and, and we share the same doctor. And after the doctor looked at him, he says, you know, I've got to talk to you about what's happening to Glenn. <laughs> so they talk. And the doctor says, you know, Glenn is doing a, a bunch of stupid things for a 62-year-old man. <laughs> uh, but maybe if he just took some time off, maybe his body's just reacting to the press, pressure he's been put in, uh, putting it under. 21 and a half miles for um, five months is a lot of time. Um, so we agreed to take a week off. And uh, took that time in Chadron. But we were having some other problems with our RV. If you put it on a hill like this, apply all the brakes, it still wanted to go like this. And we were going into the black, the Badlands, the Black Hills, the Rockies, the Cascades, and yeah. the Olympic Mountains yet. <laughs> so we thought we better have something that holds its ground. Um, and the, the people up there in, in uh, the Chadron area, actually Hay Spring, Nebraska, they did all they could. And they said, we can't do any more. Um, it needs to be looked at by somebody with more skills than we have. Um, and they recommended that we take it up into Rapid City. And I could have continued on into Rapid City. And if they fixed it, I would have continued to walk right into Sturgis, South Dakota, with the arrival of 500,000 bikers. Yeah, for real. We decided to come home instead. And we <laughs> will go back out next May, and I'll resume my walk. What's interesting is I've walked 2,554 miles. That's roughly 10 miles further than the shortest distance east to west across the United States. I've got the east to west done. Now when I go back out, I'll walk the north to south, and I'll walk from Shadron to the Pacific Ocean, um, just north of, west of Seattle. And that will take care of the, the both. And I do that. I took the difficult route because foster care kids in foster care have a difficult life. Mm. I wasn't going to take the route by going the distance of north to south and east to west. I'm trying to display the fact that this is a nationwide problem. You know, depending on who you look at, there's either 400, uh, anywhere between 480 and 540,000 kids in foster care right now. There's another 108,000 that um, are waiting to be adopted another 140,000 waiting to find foster care. And it's time that we get the message out there that this, something has to be done. I like to tell people about one of the most amazing guys I met. Um, everybody's heard of Harry Potter, but how many people know of Harry from Potter? 
um, Potter, Arkansas. I was walking through Potter, Arkansas, and Harry runs a resale shop, and he was out working in front of his shop that day, and he saw me in my bright yellow vest, and he says, you're getting ready to work on our roads? And I said, no, I'm walking to Seattle. And he goes, say what? <laughs> and I turned, went over and talked to him. And I told him what I was up to. And I told him that, you know, it's to raise awareness of foster care and adoption. And he looked me square in the eye and he said, I'm not interested. Hmm. In silence. For almost two minutes of dead silence. And then he says, now let me tell you why. He says, I just buried my second wife about three months ago. Between my wives and I, we fostered 27 kids and we have adopted five. I think I've done my part. <laughs> Harry, you have. And I thanked him profusely. And as I walked away from him that day, I, I turned my shoulder, turned my head back to him. And I said, Harry, I hope to raise up more Harry's from Potter. I'm still processing a little bit because that's just really neat that you've had this vision and that you've made it happen. And again, we bring up that fighter mentality that you clearly possess. And I, I'm just so excited for what you're doing. And I know that... A, it isn't free. And uh, also, you have the support of your wife, right? She goes along with you. Correct. She drives the support vehicle, um, often five or six miles behind me. She'll wait until I call her and say, I need a break. Um, <laughs> every night that I'm walking, I, I do a map of the next day's walk, and I outline these are the possible places where you could pull up and I can take a break. And I usually do five or six of them. And I get to the first one. If I'm doing okay, I'll just keep on walking. And I'll call her and say, just stay where you are. When I need a break, I'll call her and say, okay, come on up. And she'll pull up to where we uh, to our next agreed spot. And I'll take my break. Um, and if it's safe for her, she'll stay there. Um, most of the time, it's between six and eight miles. We've been as far, as far apart as 18 miles on more than one occasion. Be just because there was nothing in between where we could uh, connect. With When you're driving a 33-foot RV, it's, you can't just park it anywhere. So she does that, um, and we have underwritten the total cost of this by ourselves with one exception. I have an uncle who insisted on paying for our gas, um, and he has done so, and will do so again when we take out next May. All the rest of the expenses are totally underwritten by us because I don't want people giving to support my walk. I want people, if they want to give, I want them to give of their time give of their talents, and if they have to give financially, give locally, mm. where they can make a difference where they live to foster kids and adoptees. Yes. And I know that um, the biggest part of the, the raising awareness side of what you're doing is that you're stopping and chatting with a lot of adoptive nonprofits and churches and stuff along the way, right? Yes. I have now spoken with um, 30 different groups, including one that was complete, completely unexpected on Monday night. I'm an Eaton retiree. I retired from Eaton last August, and there's a Eaton retirees club that meet once meets once a month, and it's mostly union employees that retired, and they've they ask the um, salaried people to c come join them if they want, and they've never had anyone take them up on it. Huh. I showed up on Monday night. What happened that Monday night? Uh, Monday night was they also had some union reps from the district, which are quite a bit there to talk talk to them about retirement and, and some other things and what the union is, is continuing to do for them. But I was asked at the end, I said, Glenn, um, will you tell your story? And this was by one of my former coworkers. So I got up and for almost 15 minutes explained my story and what I was doing. And afterwards, the union reps came up to me and said, your story is powerful. Would you be willing to share that with our union groups across the state of Kansas? And I said, yes. So in November, I will start an, uh, a tour around Kansas, talking to different union groups about adoption and foster care. So cool. Oh. Yeah. And I wasn't even supposed to be at that meeting. I, it was just a, an invitation, a blanket invitation that goes out, and God used it to have the right people there yeah. to get the message. Well, it seems like he's had his hands all over this. I mean, you and I, you and I met because I just happened to be at a meeting at the call office and you were walking through Northwest Arkansas and stopped to tell your story. And I was, I wasn't 
like necessarily supposed to be there. I was just there for a meeting and got to listen in. And so I just think it's really cool how God connects people and how God has connected your story into so many hearts. And what a cool testimony that you have not asked for funding, that you have instead asked that those donations be made to um, to the organizations that need it. So do you have a um, do you have a list anywhere of suggested donated places or how can people get involved in supporting your cause? It depends on where, what state they're in. If they contact me uh, via my Facebook Charity Steps page, I will get back with them and tell them the, the best places in each individual state. Um, but since you were, I, I've got to, in, if I have time, I have to insert one more story in here because I wasn't Please. supposed to be at the call. I wasn't supposed to be at the call. My <laughs> plan to walk through Arkansas was to walk up the very western fringe of it. Um, a year ago, I was out walking, and I listened to K-Love Radio a lot when I was when I walk. And I called into K-Love one morning, and I said, you know, I really enjoy listening to you guys when I'm out walking because it's an inspiration. And I said, and I will probably continue to walk, listen to you next year when I walk across, across the country. And Skip says, tell me more. <laughs> so I told him about the upcoming walk, and he said, when you get on the road, please call us and let us know how you're doing. So I started on February 1st, and about every other day, I kept trying to call in. And I couldn't get an answer. The last Friday in March, Skip picked up on the second ring. And I told him that, you know, I'm walking across the country. That's as far as I got. He said, I remember this this conversation. How are you doing? And we caught up a little bit about that. And it was uh, tape delayed and, and broadcast. And Yvonne Heidelberg was, normally works in, the, in a call center office. And she doesn't normally have Caleb on when she's in the office. Because it can be disruptive because other people trying to have conversations. But she was working from the house that day. And she had Caleb cranked up. And she heard my story came on. She says, I dropped everything. And I had to find this guy. And she went to my Charity Steps Facebook page, found me, IM'd me. And I called her later. And she says, you know, you're walking through Arkansas. But I would love for you to do two things if you can. I've noticed you're walking up the Western Fringe. Would you be willing to take time out on the 28th and appear at our um, fundraising rally in, in Little Rock? And I said, well, that loses a day. Of, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> so, um, and then she says, but, you know, walking up that western edge, we really need you to walk through um, a more populated area of the state. I says, what do you have in mind? She says, well, how about? Fayetteville and Bentonville. <laughs> I had looked at that at one time and said, no, nah, that's too busy um, because my wife will be a newly, uh, a newly crowned RV driver. I says, but let me talk to her about it. And we did some calculations. We saw that the population in the area is about 380,000, about the size of Wichita. And we said, okay, I can do this too. <clears throat> Only to find out later that it's closer to three quarters of a million people living in the area. Um, and, <laughs> We, uh, but we made the decision and that's how we ended up where you were in Northwest Arkansas. It was a change of plans brought about because of one phone call to K-Love Radio. Wow. That's so cool. So have you been able to keep up with K-Love? Yes, I have. Um, I've called them a couple times. Um, I haven't heard any updates of late on there, but I'm trying to get through them the last couple of days to let them know that I got shut down for a while. Right now they don't know. Oh, gotcha. Um, I hope to they'll know the, the first part of next week, if not yet the end of this week. And uh, then we'll go from there. But, yeah, I, I continue to listen to Caleb out when I'm walking. Even in the remote areas, um, I get to pick up on my phone and listen to the, the podcast. Yeah. So, okay, Glenn, I got to know, what's your favorite – What's your favorite resource for um, for what you're doing or for adoptive families or how can they get how can they get involved not just in what you're doing but just in overall the cause across the country? Um, the one that I've worked the most closely with it's actually two of them and I'll there, there's different reasons for them. Um, TFI in Kansas and Oklahoma um, and part of Nebraska. It stands for the Farm Incorporated, and it started as a farm where they brought kids out and um, orphanage orphans 
but it evolved into a, a foster care group serving multiple multiple states and they do a, a bang up job of training their um, foster parents but the other one that I've been most impressed with is the call out of Arkansas really and it's Yes, and it's great to hear that they're also expanding into Kansas. Yes. Um, the call, the, the thing that I like about the call is that they work with churches. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you take, you know, 580,000 kids in the system and another 140,000 looking to be adopted, looking to be placed in foster care, that's almost 700,000 kids that need a home. There's almost a million churches in this country. If every church just fostered one child, one child, there wouldn't be a shortage. And I say it because it takes more than just one family to foster a child. It takes people to come around them to provide support, to provide the re- the, um, the resources for a weekend, a weeknight out. You know, if I was a, a parent and I wanted to go away with my wife for a, a night or a weekend. I could just ship them off to grandpa or grandma to, or foster kids can't do that. Mm-hmm. Um, they need respite parents that they can send it to. So have a, um, send them to a respite parent. Become that within the church. Um, become an emergency shelter. Become a CASA volunteer, uh, the voice of the child in the courtroom. I know that when I went through those court hearings, I never had a CASA volunteer to, to defend and talk and speak up for me. I was mm-hmm. totally at the mercy of my social worker. And it often pitted conflicting things. Um, But that CASA volunteer, be a mentor. Um, Foster kids have not necessarily had the best role models to look up to. And schools are a great place to get involved. Um, Here in Hutch, every single elementary school in the Hutchinson area has mentor programs that people can plug into. Plus, there's big brothers, big sisters. And I encourage people to get get in touch with them. And become a mentor. Um, so those those are the kinds of things I tell people to, to do. And at the very least, get on your knees and pray. Get your church involved in prayer for these kids. Um, so, Yeah, and you know, are, I was going to ask you what your biggest piece of advice would be, but it sounds like you just said it, right? No. <laughs> it, <laughs> it depends. If somebody is, is looking to get involved... Um, those are the kinds of pieces I would I would give advice as advice. If somebody is already a foster parent, um, I would give or or an adoptive or want to be adoptive parent. I would give them some advice. First, I would tell them they need to learn to forgive unconditionally. Mm. Foster child you have today is going to do the same thing next week he did today that made you upset, angry, bothered. He's going to do the same thing two months from now. The same thing four months from now. I know that my dad, my foster father, my adopted father and I, um, my dad, as I call him, we had the same conversations on many times. But the old instances were never brought up because he forgave unconditionally. That's the first thing you need to do. The next thing is you have to love unconditionally. If we knew how to love from those who loved us, we wouldn't be where we are. Hmm. Um but they needed, to, they needed to teach me how to love um, beyond just myself. But they also had to teach me how to love myself. And the third thing I, I have to tell them is you have to lead, learn to lead by example. Um, and that goes for anybody. You need anybody associated remotely with a foster child or an adoptive child. Lead by example. Those teachers at Flint Christian School that said, we will challenge him the rest of the time he's here. They were leading by example. Yeah. That, and so those are the three things I tell them. You got to forgive, love, and lead. Powerful stuff, Glenn. Goodness. You've laid a lot of truth bombs on us, and I'm so appreciative of that. Um, and I want, so you've talked before about your Facebook and your charity steps. Where can people find you more specifically? And of course, I will put this in the show notes as well for you guys that are listening. Um. On Facebook, it's KS Charity Steps, or they can look for Glenn.Coster. And yeah, there's there's actually about nine or ten of us out there. Um, <laughs> only one of them is related to me, and that's my son. He goes by Junior. Um, but um, yeah, Glenn.Coster on Facebook is me. 
but KS Charity Steps is, is the best place to connect with me. So cool. And if you're a K-Love listener, you should listen for um, him to be calling in and keeping them updated as well. Uh, and I'm just, yeah, I'm just so thrilled that you took the time to be on here with me, Glenn. And I hope that you, uh, I don't know, I hope that you're able to start strong again next year. And I hope that you get so much more support and so many local charities are funded because of what you're doing. I hope so too. And I hope the message gets out to even broader groups. Thank you for listening to the Adoptive Mom Podcast. I know this stuff is hard and I hope you found encouragement here. Remember, you are enough and you're doing a great job. God wants to be at the center of this journey and he is big enough to redeem all of our mistakes. Don't forget to check out show notes and other resources at theadoptivemompodcast.com. Thanks again for listening.